0: We have no music.
1: Oh, we do. I found something. We're going to use it. I'm so excited. I know. It's going to be good. What do you think? Listen to this. Yeah, yeah. That'll work. Brilliant. Hi, I'm Alison Seeger, and this is Feminism, Fascism, and the Future, a podcast about the rising threat of the anti-gender ideology movement and how we, as feminists, can fight back. In the first two episodes, we began to connect the dots between anti-gender ideology movements and the rising threat of fascism. In this episode, we want to talk about fighting back and creating a more feminist world. But in order to do that, we really need to dig deeper into words like gender and sex. The anti-gender ideology movement really believes that sex and gender are as plain as the nose on your face we are male or female, and that's all there is. Just a binary, black and white. Even the well-known and respected evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins insists that sex is the only binary in nature.
2: It is a very odd phenomenon because um, I'm used to continua wherever I look. I mean,
3: there's tall versus short, fat versus thin, old versus young, all these things are a smooth
2: continuum. Um, The one thing that isn't is sex. I mean, sex really is binary, there's no question about it. You're either male or female.
1: But evolutionary biologists have been wrong about their assumptions about men and women before. Remember hearing that men were hunters and women gatherers? Well, according to a recent article in Scientific American, that was bunk.
0: This was done by a team from University of Washington and Seattle Pacific University. They combed through accounts from as far back as the 1800s through to present day, and their finding, published in the journal PLOS One, is that in almost 80% of the societies there's data for, women were hunting. And this wasn't just women killing some animal the woman happened
4: upon. Here's the lead author, Kara Welsh sheffler The hunting was purposeful. Women had their own toolkit. They had favorite weapons. Grandmas were the best hunters of the
0: village. And in about a third of these cases, the women were hunting large mammals.
1: Wow, that is surprising.
0: Well, it's not really that surprising. Hi, everyone. I'm Laurie Essig, and I'm a professor of gender studies. If you look at the history of science, you can see that it has always been better at proving what we already believe to be true about the body rather than looking at what the evidence actually shows. Whether it was about race and sex in the 1800s or about sex and gender today, scientists are, after all, humans with deeply held cultural beliefs. Sometimes, believing is seeing when it comes to what it means to be a man or a woman. In other words, we can't always see the body for what it is, because we already believe it to be a strict binary. But in gender studies, we encourage our students to ask questions, not have all the answers. I always start my introductory class with the question, What's your gender and how do you know? I ask this question because I want my students to know less about gender and sex, but I have a whole lot of questions they ask whenever someone is making claims about the body. But the anti-gender ideology movement doesn't like questions, it likes answers. Conservative Ben Shapiro is very clear that he has all the answers about sex and gender.
3: You've heard that some men have vaginas? and that some women have penises. In the past few years, you've heard a lot of statements that sound like absolute gobbledygook. And if somebody with a time machine from say, I don't know, five years ago, moved forward about five years and heard these statements, they would think that they were absolute gobbledygook. And you've heard of pregnant men and men who chest feed and women who have prostate problems. You've heard that we shouldn't raise boys as boys and girls as girls because we can't actually be sure that kids have the sex, quote unquote, assigned to them at birth. Most people, at least in the US, would
0: not agree with Mr. Shapiro. Most Americans agree that gender is what gets imposed on the body, and men and women aren't really that different. A 2017 Pew Research poll showed that the majority of women and most Democrats believe that social expectations, that is, gender, is what creates the differences between men and women, not biology. But most people believe gender is cultural, and sex is biological, but sex can get pretty messy once we let go of the belief that bodies are simply male or female. Feminist biologists like Anne Fausto-Sterling talk about sex variations in intersex births, babies with XX null chromosomes, or babies with XY chromosomes who develop a vagina. In other words, in gender studies, we question all certainties, including the certainty that the body is a strict binary. Gender theorist Judith Butler once asked, what if sex is gender all along? What Butler meant was that the body, sex that is, is just as much a product of our culture as our roles as men or women. Maybe that's why anti-gender ideology activists burned effigies of Butler when they showed up for a conference in Brazil in 2017 equating a middle-aged professor from Berkeley with a serious threat to civilization. Saying that our bodies are not natural, but products of society and culture, threatens the order of things. Patriarchy only works when people believe that men and women are really and truly different. That human bodies are not just male or female is not something religious and political conservatives are willing to accept.
1: But the idea that sex might not be as simple as the anti-gender movement tells us it's not just theory. It's science. In the next segment, medical anthropologist Rebecca Jordan Young explains to our colleague Judith Levine why the basic assumption of the anti-gender movement, that there are only males and females, is not backed up by science, but by ideology.
4: I am a professor at Barnard College in the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, and by training I am a socio-medical scientist. So what I do is study exactly at the intersection of science and culture. I look at the way that social processes and hierarchies show up in the way that science is done, And I also look at the way science or ideas about science or scientific authority flow out into the culture and politics, um, in particular, as a way to give authority to different movements and ideas.
3: Am I correct that your focus of study really has been on the science and culture and and politics of uh, sex and gender?
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, although it's, you know, I think as is true with a lot of people over the last 10 years or so, it's become obvious to me that you can't study that without having a really close eye also on class hierarchies, on racial hierarchies and racialization. Um, But yeah, sex, gender and sexuality um, started out as the core of what I do. And they're always, uh, they're always heavily in the mix.
3: How do you interpret the term gender ideology as it's being used by Ron DeSantis and other people in the right?
4: It's a anxiousness about undermining traditional gender roles and the idea that it's, um, you know, a moral decay broadly connected to gender and sexuality.
3: One of the tenets of the anti, quote, gender ideology movement um, is the body has an unambiguous sex. Um, Tell us from the research you've done what's wrong with that idea. Yeah, and about the talk to us a little bit about the diversity of biology of sex.
4: Well, this is for me some of the most fun work and intriguing work that comes out of sexuality and gender studies in the last A couple of decades. And in particular, I should note, I'm not sure I said this before, that I really work in science and technology studies. So um, people who have looked closely at so-called sex biology, and the reason I keep saying so-called here is that there was a period in academic feminist studies where the body was taken and used with this the term sex was reserved for that which is biology and the body the material world and gender is the behavioral and social and normative parts of what we assign to male or female and over time looking very very closely in particular at developmental processes it's become clear that there isn't such a clear separation and and while Conservatives are very determined to uh, assert that the they aren't separated, but that's because those things that we identify as gender flow directly from and are a result of sex biology. What a lot of work in gender studies has showed is that, in fact, we can show the really deep material effects on bodies of social and historical processes related to gender. And um, there's beautiful work by Ann Fausta Sterling, for example, around bones. That is one of my favorite examples where we look at uh, something like differences in bone density as just a, a fact of differently sexed bodies that because of different hormones and possibly because of something about sex chromosomes, men have higher bone density than women. And in particular, at menopause, women began to rapidly lose their bone density and so on. But there's beautiful work that shows that the pattern of male-female difference is really variable in different times and places. And there's even a, a place that is right here where I'm sitting as we do this interview, which is Crown Heights, Brooklyn, where the so-called typical sex difference is actually reversed and young women have higher bone density than young men. And this seems to persist all the way through the life. And that's within the Orthodox Jewish community in Crown Heights. And it has probably to do with differences in this community and diet. The fact that um, sports is not the pinnacle of masculinity in the Orthodox Jewish community here. So they're not doing a lot of sports and, you know, Everybody is dressing modestly and not getting a whole lot of sunlight exposure. And we could go into all the details. But the the point here is there is this beautiful work that shows that our bodies, even something as solid and really, really literally solid as our bones, um, are responsive to the way that we organize gender activities. And so coming back to the notion that bodies are just naturally Divided into these two absolutely um, homogenous groups that are absolutely distinct from one another across all times and places is counter to all the evidence that we have. You know, usually when people are answering this, they'll go to something like um, they'll go to the so called intersex um, conditions where. That the parts of the body that we think of as about sex don't always line up in, in the way that is typical. I like to be really expansive about it, but basically we can think that there are at least five different aspects of the body that are usually identified as a Location or a determinant of sex. So you think the chromosomes with uh, the typical patterns of XX, XY. Well, those are not the only patterns. And sometimes there's um, XXY or (laughs) XYY or XX or just X. And we could go on with those patterns. And then there are the gonads, which are, you know, the testes and the ovaries. Well, sometimes people with XX chromosomes actually have testes instead of ovaries. And then there are secondary sex characteristics, things like waist-hip ratio, and their hormones, the steroid hormones that are sometimes called sex hormones, which is a term I really like to avoid. Um, so those aspects of the body are thought of as completely clustering together in a binary way that's either, either male or female, and um, they just all line up in what I call a package deal of sex. But they really don't always line up. The three that line up the most often are the chromosomes, the gonads, and the genitals. But even those don't always line up. The other ones are so far from binary that you know simply dressing like the uh, other gender can really confuse people a lot of the time. Bodies have never been... Um, strictly binary. They, they aren't now. They never really were. And so th- the idea that that feminists are introducing some kind of craziness, you know, just, just isn't right. Scientifically, there, there's no single place that you could ever point to in the body and say, here is sex. And if, when those, when different parts of the body quote disagree with one another, you can't say, oh, well, this one is the gold standard. We're going to go to the chromosomes because that's the real truth. There are many, many cases where, you know, when there have been disputes and it's been important to decide, it's the combination of medical experts, scientific experts, and legal experts have said, actually, no, chromosomes aren't always a good guide because. You know, there are situations in which somebody might have so-called male chromosome patterns, but have lived and been recognized in their entire lives as female. Um, anyway, that's, those are some of the examples. And the point is that bodies are not as simple as two tidy binary sexes.
1: Dr. Jordan Young and her colleague Katrina Karkasas, a medical anthropologist, ended up becoming experts on the impossibility of sex testing in the Olympics, a practice that's been around since the 1960s, but has only ever been targeted towards female athletes, like the South African runner, Casta Semenya.
4: Katrina and I stepped into this work um, in uh, around late 2011, when um, The International Olympic Committee had fairly recently created a new rule around testosterone levels. And this, they were touting that rule as a newly scientific way to separate um, the sexes for, for sex segregated competition. And the idea was that, you know, with that testosterone is this dimorphic feature that above a certain level, You're male and or you have, quote, male type, male typical, masculine advantage. And below that, you don't have that advantage and that you can run with other women. Now, why testosterone? That's because they had already tried all other manner of separating the sexes and had come up against many, many problems, um, scientific, ethical, legal problems. And so sex testing goes all the way back to the very beginning of you know women being um, included in elite sports in the early 20th century when women were uh, first allowed to compete in the Olympics. From the very beginning, there were concerns that any woman who was competing at that level was maybe not really a woman. And the anxiety had always been around, quote, protecting the female category from male imposters. And in fact, there never have been any male imposters. Not one has ever been uncovered. Knowing somebody's testosterone level does not predict how they're going to do on a a test of speed or of strength, and it never has. One of the endocrinologists that we interviewed when we were doing this project really put it beautifully when she said, sometimes bodies make more of a particular substance when they're not very efficient at using it. So the the point there is higher levels of testosterone sometimes indicate that somebody doesn't have very good receptor sensitivity, so their body doesn't use it so much. Anyway, back to the history, there were nude parades required of elite female athletes just to take a look at them and basically to see their genitals um, and make sure that everybody was women. They were deeply humiliating. There were gynecological exams that were required um, at a couple of, of world events. And then it seemed like they had really settled on something when they decided to do chromosome
5: testing. Sports officials don't divide athletics by the size of your hand or your foot, but they do draw a line between men and women. The problem is the criteria that's used to draw that line. And it's always been problematic. By the 1960s, officials became skeptical that successful female athletes might actually be men disguised as women. Polish sprinter Ewa Kobukowska, for example, had won bronze running the women's 100 meters at the 1964 Olympics. A few years later, officials made sex testing mandatory for female athletes at the 1966 European Track and Field Championships, and Kowbukowska was forced to undergo inspection. She was physically examined in what was called a nude parade, where female athletes were examined by a panel of doctors who would inspect their genitals to confirm their sex. Kowbukowska passed her test and qualified as female in 1966. But the next year, officials replaced physical exams with chromosomal testing, meaning she would have to be tested all over again. When sports officials changed the sex testing criteria, Kopakovska failed the new version, and she was banned from competing as female, despite having passed the female exam a year before.
4: There was a Spanish runner, Maria Martinez Patino, who um, actually took the International Olympic Committee to court, because when she was disqualified because of the XY chromosome. She lost everything. She lost her sports scholarship. She lost her fiance. She lost her reputation. It was devastating to her family, to her own psychology. And so digging in, that's when the medical community said, well, it, you're right, there isn't just one thing and maybe the chromosomes aren't the best measure. So they, at that point, the Uh, scientific committee of the Olympics agreed that there was no single factor in the body that would be a good determinant. But decades later, because of the anxiety around a few runners, not only Castor Semenya, they circled back around and thought, well, let's try this with testosterone. It's kind of crazy, even if you look back at Maria uh, Patino case, because there she was running at an Olympic level, and everybody agreed that her body was completely unable to use testosterone. So to then turn around and claim that testosterone is the absolute be-all and end-all of elite sports is just totally illogical. Um, so can you talk a little bit
3: about the role of of, of technology?
4: It's such a good question, Judith. And I think, um, you know... Clearly the right is not anti-technology. Technology Technology only becomes a great concern when it threatens um, something about a set of hierarchies that are (laughs) useful to those in power. When we think about in sports, what constitutes advantage or disadvantage you know, technology isn't just stuff that happens in really um, high end labs and petri dishes, and with the help of you know <laughs> DNA splicing or something or fancy prostheses. We could also think about technology as really good running shoes and a, a better track to run on, and good timers and slow down cameras to help somebody determine what's going on with the way that they launch themselves at the beginning of a sprint. Um, technology is lots of these things, and there's no question that athletes in the developed Western countries win way more world competitions than, than they are a proportion of the population, right? I mean, like, let's talk about this. Technology, okay, how many women across the political spectrum are using hormonal birth control right now in the United States. How many women are using um, hormones postmenopausally? But the idea that a trans woman could use hormones to support her own body ideal is seen as in a totally different category than
3: that. Is there any role for nature in thinking about or even trying to understand what nature is, if it yeah. is something, in thinking about all of these questions?
4: Yeah, actually, that's a great question. I, I think there definitely is. You know, there's beautiful, beautiful work on sex and biodiversity and the enormous variety and variability of sex and the characteristics of sex in nature. And that is something that's uh, a big focus among feminist biologists and science and technology studies folks were in fact looking not looking away from nature and thinking we have to get away from that and ignore you know let's of course let's not idolize nature and and raise it to this fantastic uh, platform but the the idea that nature is the enemy of all things good and queer is is um absolutely not the case nature I mean, you said this in your question, really, it's not nature, it's the idea of nature and it's a particular set of claims about nature that are used by the right. Um, And in fact, if you look at actual bodies, if you look at the actual diversity of, of beings in the world, you cannot
3: find a binary anywhere. You know, you've been talking about the anxiety coming from the right. And one of the things that Laurie is looking at in this podcast is uh, the group of feminists called TERFs or trans exclusive uh, radical feminists. Right. And um, one of the things that uh, these feminists are worried about is the erasure of this category of person called a woman who has been and continues to be discriminated against, you know, the subject of, the object of violence. uh, And as we've, you know, recently, uh, the um, reneging on rights that we've had for many, many years. How do you address that anxiety? I don't think it's um, an illegitimate anxiety.
4: Yeah, (laughs) well, I mean, the way I think of it is, this is one of those places where I think it's most useful to immediately notice that the politics of of reproduction, the politics of uh, discrimination in general, cannot be understood if you're thinking about a single axis of hierarchy and oppression. So, to me, the the most important way to engage with anti-trans arguments and the whole the turf. Um, category uh, of argument in particular, is to recognize that racialization and class oppression in particular mean that the forms of discrimination that sexism takes are extremely variable uh, within different subsets of people. And that for a number of years, I've thought it's less useful to think about Um, sexism as being about women being consistently across the board disempowered or or oppressed than it is about the ways in which hierarchy that is based on gender normativity gets enforced. So in fact there's a lot of punishment for effeminate boys and men. And if those effeminate boys and men are also class insecure um, or racialized, they really, really face violence, including sexual violence, at rates that even exceed the sexual violence that's faced by biological cisgender women. And when we look at sexual violence against trans women right now, especially trans women of color, that's very, very clear. Likewise, with reproductive politics, it's true that, you know, the control of reproduction is something that's always been very important to the right. But the way that that's that's targeted and shaped, it matters a lot if you're talking about the reproduction of women who are seen as the potential mothers of the ideal population, as opposed to people who are seen as producing too many children for the ideal population or producing, you know, the wrong kind of children for the ideal population. And those are, again, you know, poor women, women of color, et cetera. So I think it's, for me, the kind of protection of the category of woman has become less and less important the more more tuned into the variegated nature of sexism and reproductive injustice and sexual violence.
1: So what we can learn from Dr. Jordan Young is that science and facts about the body are not on the side of the right-wing anti-gender ideology movement but they're also not on the side of trans-exclusionary feminists who are insisting we have to protect the category of women without considering how people who are poor or BIPOC or trans are especially vulnerable to patriarchal violence. And Dr. Jordan Young is really asking us to complicate this category of women to consider how things like race and class and nation shape the body. In the next section of the podcast, Laurie Essig and Catherine Wright talk to Juliana Neuhauser about this strange overlap between trans-exclusionary feminism and the far-right anti-gender ideology movement.
2: My name is Juliana Neuhauser and I'm a Mexico-based translator, um, researcher, and part-time journalist. I generally focus on the... I generally focus on anti-trans movements and anti-gender movements, um, both locally and on the international level.
0: And Juliana, I wonder if for our audience, um, you could explain um what the anti-gender movement is and and in particular the different groups it targets.
2: The anti-gender movement is a movement that well, there's two there's two forms to it. There's the classical form and then there's the reloaded version. And The classical form is that it's a conservative movement, um, classically conservative, like generally organized through uh, religious organizations to oppose feminism and LGBT rights. For example, after the Supreme Court decision establishing marriage equality in Mexico, there was an anti-gender movement that was formed called the National Front for the Family um, that was historically an alliance between Catholics and Protestants because they never really got along before to oppose the advance of gay rights at the national level. Like, like That's the classical form, right? In more recent years, we've been seeing a strange alliance where they've started to incorporate radical feminists to it. There was an event in um, the Federal Chamber of Deputies here a couple months ago where the National Action Party, which is the the right-wing party. It's very close to the Catholic Church, anti-abortion, all the general social conservative positions you can imagine. Invited in Laura Lipkona, who's a radical feminist and lesbian militant to present her book there. And in the question and answer section, and, and generally in the discussion that followed the presenta- the presentation of the book, people were explicitly saying we are going to have a truce on abortion in order to stop trans rights. And so this is, that's like the reloaded version. So
0: I think for a lot of our listeners and for me, it's confusing that radical feminists would ally themselves with far-right political parties and
3: movements.
2: So I would say that we would have to look to the the US there because there was a, a series of things that happened in the US about 10 years ago that made that possible. And so one of the things is that there has always been trans hostile current in radical feminism it's obviously not all of radical feminism you know like even like Catherine mckinnon for example has recently come out and said that she's very pro-trans rights and if anyone has rad femme credentials it's her you know so like that's why people say turf because it's not even all radical feminists it's specific subset of them right but there there had always been a trans exclusionary current and radical feminism since the 70s and I think that a lot of people focus on the ancient history there of like what things went down in the 70s but I think the important thing to focus on is what happened 10 years ago and 10 years ago the main center of trans exclusionary radical feminism was uh, the Michigan Women's Music Festival and this festival of music by and for women Um, that they had in Michigan each year, and it famously had policies that trans women could not enter. And there had been protests there outside the festival since the 90s, but what happened in 2013 was that the Indigo Girls, who were one of the most popular bands in lesbian music circles, said that they would no longer play there unless the festival changed its policy. And then that led to like a bunch of other bands to also cancel their appearances at MitchFest, and the festival finally closed in 2015. And 2015 is also the year that the Supreme Court established marriage equality. And so what you had was this group of transphobic radical feminists that hadn't been moving with the general current of the mainstream LGBT rights movement or the mainstream of US feminism, but they had their home and now they no longer had their home. And so they no longer had like the place they could go and express their views among like-minded people. They were feeling lost. And then at the same time, you had a conservative movement that had just faced one of its biggest losses, which was the battle over marriage. Also in 2015 was when the first bathroom bill was introduced in North Carolina. North Carolina lawmakers approved House Bill 2. This was known as the bathroom bill. Supporters felt they were standing up to a progressive agenda, but criticism punished the state. More than 1,000 jobs lost because of the law, also consumer boycotts. From member station WUNC, Jeff Tabiri reports.
5: The divide between rural and urban America has long been on display here in North Carolina. And last spring, when Republican lawmakers pushed through House Bill 2, those divisions got deeper, triggering months of protests in the state capital of Raleigh. They insist on forcing us to bow and kiss the ring of their political correctness theology.
6: Government overreach surely must be when they start making laws about where we can pee.
5: HB2 was a response to an ordinance approved by the city of Charlotte that gave protections to LGBT people. The state law preempted that ordinance, and among other provisions, requires people to use the bathroom corresponding to the sex listed on their birth certificate.
2: So then all of these things start to come together these people start to find each other. They finally come together at a conference called Hands Across the Isle in 2017 that was organized by the Heritage Foundation that brought together exactly the transphobic radfems that were finding themselves increasingly on the defensive because they no longer had their space, but also they were finding themselves increasingly under attack within the mainstream LGBT rights movement. And they found that place within this strange new alliance and what the conservatives got out of it and they've explicitly said this is that they realized that speaking about their op- opposition to queer rights from a religious perspective didn't gain them many recruits and it didn't gain them much sympathy because in any country with a secular state or that aspires to have a secular state even if you you are also religious that argument can come off badly and what the TERFs gave them was secular arguments against trans people. And so instead of speaking about God made you that way, like Pope Francis does, they got, this is unfair to women in sports. Or what if predators want to enter the bathroom? Or this is the erasure of women. And those arguments are much easier to sell to a mainstream public because they are seemingly reasonable concerns.
1: It's true that a lot of people who were previously fighting for gay rights and women's rights, a lot of everyday feminists are now convinced that the current movement for trans rights is a threat to women and girls. Here's one of my earlier heroes, tennis superstar and gay rights champion, Martina Navratilova.
2: And I find it peculiar that we are only seeing this from one side, with trans women taking up space in women's spaces, but we do not hear the same of men having to define what a man is. Uh, mm. So wonder that why that is. Of course, I again, come from from uh, this uh, this from from a sporting uh, viewpoint, and and what what is fairness. So I really come from it uh, at this whole issue from uh, from. position of fairness for for women and girls competing in sports because that with sports uh, biology matters.
1: This idea that trans women are hurting cis women and girls in sports or that trans rights are erasing the category of women has become a popular talking point not just for the far right but many lesbian and gay activists and feminists like Nora Vatilova.
0: What is it about that rhetoric that that is working so well? And the reason I ask is because I want to know how to fight it. Like, how do we disrupt the power of that rhetoric to create feminist alliances?
2: I would say that one of the reasons it functions is precisely because one of the patriarchal impulses is you are supposed to protect the indefenceless, kind of like the quote unquote positive side of patriarchy. Right. Where, you know, like if you think of patriarchy as a contract, the men have the power and in exchange for that power, they function as protectors of the, at least the women and children in their immediate, basically looking for this contract to be reestablished that many women in the conservative movement saw that it was it's better to submit to one man who will function as a protector for me than to face like a freer world with all of its dangers.
0: Because I don't think trans exclusionary feminism has a huge place in mainstream feminism in the U.S., you know, whether it's the Women's March or, or the university, but it's obviously growing. I think what's happening is the rhetoric is growing among people who identify as feminists or LGB. LGB. And the rhetoric involves this notion that, right, that women worked really hard to create women's sports and that this is somehow a liberating or liberatory project. I don't know that it is. It seems to me a project designed to reinforce the gender binary. But putting that aside, there's this sense that, like, we fought really hard to have this, and now it's being taken away, right? Like, these are just run-of-the-mill feminists. Feminist lesbians who I encounter in my daily life, and I'm wondering how we can speak to them. How do we create alliances with them that are about focusing on what's really coming for their rights, which is a global fascist movement, and not focusing on that one trans woman who did well in the swimming competitions? you know, whatever, um, right? Because A, how many trans women are competing in sports and the sense that they're taking over or going to destroy sports seems out of proportion with the numbers to me, right? I mean, this, but it, but it clearly works on cis women who identify as feminists and feel as if sports are liberating and they're being taken away from them, right? How, how do we how do we talk to them? How do we say, hey, you know, maybe you should focus on Ron DeSantis? Have them
2: focus on the women's sports that people actually follow and tell them what they see there. Because, for example, in tennis, you know, like tennis is another one of the women's sports that is like most popular and successful. There have been famous trans women who have done very well in the history of tennis. There was Renee Richards, right? She was very um, good in the 70s. And we haven't seen anything like that since. And so then you see, like, even though one, like, trans woman was able to do very well in tennis, it didn't functionally lead to a takeover of women's tennis. You don't see trans women beating Serena Williams, like, because she's better than than any trans tennis players out right now. I think the other thing to talk about was, would be to show them that, it's a talking point that was designed in conservative think things. Like there's the famous speech that um, was given at the Value Voters Summit in 2017 by, incidentally, a member of Hands Across the Aisle, where it was like, get the T out, where they're like, we need to separate the T from the rest of the acronym because the T is the weakest, it's the weak link. And then we can break their alliance and go after them one by one. But I, very few people have actually listened to the full speech. And in that speech, she talks about, we are going to use this talking point about trans women in sports.
1: It's true that a lot of anti-LGBT activists are trying to frame trans rights as a threat to lesbian and feminist rights. According to Right Wing Watch at the 2017 Values Voter Summit, which is hosted by the very anti-LGBT Family Research Council and where Donald Trump gave the keynote speech, a constant theme of splitting trans rights from lesbian and gay rights emerged. One of the speakers, Meg Kilgannon, Director of Concerned Parents and Educators of Fairfax County, encouraged right-wing activists to, and I quote, Focus on gender
0: identity to divide and conquer. For all of its recent success, the LGBT alliance is actually fragile, and the trans activists need the gay rights movement to help legitimize them. Gender identity on its own is just a bridge too far. If you separate the T from the alphabet soup, we'll have more success. I wonder if you could, could lay some of that out for our listeners. Like what exactly, how close are these connections? What's going on in terms of financing, et cetera?
2: So I would say that it depends on the organization and it depends on the country because some of them will have closer ties than others. In England, I would say it depends because there are Some groups in England, such as Women's Place UK, that have denounced um, gender critical people who work with the far right, but they are increasingly the minority. For example, Posey Parker is the one who invented the whole adult human female thing. She's the one that has the closest ties to the far right. She's gone on far right podcasts. She has selfies with Holocaust deniers. She's had Nazis at her rallies. And when these things happen, Women's Place UK, which is close to the Labour Party, will denounce her. But then Posey Parker has the support of people like J.K. Rowling. And so the majority of the gender-critical movement is going to go with J.K. Rowling, who supports the far-right factions of the movement.
1: Posy Parker is a social media influencer, known for her anti-trans rhetoric. She likes to say things like...
6: I defend women's rights. I'm I'm not going to allow anyone to take them. And if I start saying that I'm an uh, anti-trans or a gender critical, I'm sort of allowing the conversation to be about something other than women. And so I I think these terms are quite clinical as far as I'm concerned. And women is is my absolute thing.
3: What is the extent of the danger to women at the moment, do you think?
6: Gosh, it's so massive. From... Um, women with psychosis going into mental health units, uh, there are not just men on the ward who call themselves women, uh, not just women being recorded as bigots for recognising those men as men, uh, but there's also staff on those wards that are men that call themselves women. So, gaslighting women in deep psychosis, that's that's one thing. Yeah. Um, not being allowed to ask for a female in pretty much any of the police force or the NHS and guaranteed to get one. Mm. So that might be um, for a cervical smear, um, for a mammogram. Uh, it might just be because you actually don't want to be touched by a man. and mm. uh, You can't guarantee that you'll get one. If I was arrested this afternoon and they thought I was uh, had anything, uh, any drugs on me, if that police officer says he's female, no matter what he looks mm. like, He is allowed to intimately search my person. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then you've got gaslighting of girls in schools. You've got girls not being able to have any of their sports, any of their spaces. I mean, everything that women have carved out for ourselves Mm -hmm. with regard to our safety, our privacy, and our dignity is completely under threat.
2: I think that there's varying layers of complicity in this alliance. There's many people who... Still think of themselves as being liberals or on the left that don't realize that they've been taken in by what is essentially a far right alliance. In the US, I would say that there's no mass groups. You know, like Wolf is an organization that's at this point funded by the right. They, but it's not a very large organization. And, but that, like, what they primarily do is like Amicus Grace in lawsuits that involve transitions. So the discourse around detransition, to put it shortly, um, it started off as something in radical feminist circles where people were saying dysphoria is a side effect of the patriarchy and you should fight the dysphoria by fighting patriarchy, not by undergoing a gender transition. But then it slowly got appropriated by far-right groups basically taking all the feminism out of it. And so then you get like Chloe Cole saying that she's just a victim of LGBT propaganda. And those groups have a lot of influence because that's one of the talking points that is most popular because people are understandably concerned about what's best for children and so if somebody says this isn't what's best for children people might fall for it because sometimes we we don't know what's best for children when we're adults right but we we always want to do the right thing by them but in terms of base groups it's the far right they like, like all the all the protests that are organized by groups like Moms for Liberty or the Proud Boys, like they've, the foot soldiers are Trump people, QAnon people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would say this particular configuration can also vary by country because in Mexico, the foot soldiers and the people who do the dirty work are very young radicalized feminists. Like those are the people who you have to watch out for like on the street, like the people who will threaten you with a barbed wire baseball bat, or tase you, um, as happened in Guadalajara. They would be, like, young red radfems who, again, I don't think are entirely aware of their complicity with the far-right. Some of them are, definitely, but others, I think, are not. Although not all of the feminists who get involved in this alliance are completely aware of it, of their level of complicity. And even some of the ones that are aware but think that they can come out on top in the end... They need to be aware that these kinds of alliances have their own logic. My
0: my last question really is, and I I don't really expect you to solve fascism, but I kind of want you to solve fascism, Okay. which is, I don't think I can reach those people, right? I I can't reach them. But who I want to reach is, you know, my former student listening to this podcast, that random person on the subway listening to this podcast who is compelled by these talking points. You know, women's sports are under threat. Erasure of women, right? Those talking points create anxiety in them. Reasonably so. We we live in highly patriarchal societies that would love to destroy women and girls. And so how do I convince them to stop worrying about who the hell is in the bathroom stall next to them and start really worrying about This right-wing global fascism that is in Spain so deeply, that is in the United States so deeply, that is in Mexico, that is in Poland, that is in Russia, that is in Brazil. Right? This, how do I get them to see the forest for the trees? Or yeah, tell tell us how to solve the. What you're doing
2: right now is what you should be doing, because I think that if you. Fight on the ground picked by the far right, you will always lose. It's Like when they talk about like transsexual predators, for example, there's always a few examples that they pick, right? And some, some that are famous around the world. And, and they always use these stories. And it's, like, and it's not that they're not true, because obviously there are some trans people who are sexual predators. Just like in every demographic, there's going to be some people who are bad people. No one is safe from that there's going to be some Jews who are bad people. Weimar Germany, there were were some Jews who were pedophiles because there's pedophiles in every group. But then those pedophiles were the ones that were used in Nazi propaganda to say, this is the way Jews are, right? Right. So if you fight on the ground of the framing that they use, you will always lose. Because yes, you can say, you can take out the statistic saying like, these people are not, representative of the general population they're not statistically a threat to you but that accepts the framing of the of the right we need to focus not on the bathroom issues or the sports issues or whatever we need to create a counter narrative which is what's actually going on here why is it that like in in mexico there are podcasts where there's trans-exclusionary radical feminists on the doing interviews with neo-Nazis and they'll mention La Lucona and then people on the other side will talk about the Turner diaries. That's what we need to focus on. And if we focus on that counter narrative of well, who are these people promoting these messages and what are what do they want? It gets pretty scary pretty quick. Like you don't have to scratch a lot of them that deep to find links to the far right whether it's Vox in Spain or Tommy Robinson in England or the Proud Boys in the U.S. or the Yunque or these fascist groups in in Mexico and If we focus on that narrative, rather than responding to the talking points that they're trying to give us, then I think we will have much better luck in combating it.
1: So here we are, in this topsy-turvy world where an anti-scientific view of sex and the body has left both the far-right and trans-exclusionary feminists to form a strange alliance. And this far-right and trans-exclusionary feminist alliance is something that is happening all over the world, because it's easy to convince people that sex is simple, even if science says otherwise. That's why the Hazte Oya, or Make Yourself Heard movement in Spain was so successful with their free speech bus that appeared all over the world. With simple graphics and common sense language, the free speech bus announced It's biology. Boys are boys and always will be. Girls are girls and always will be. You can't change sex. But it's not biology that the far-right and trans-exclusionary feminists are relying on. It's ideology. And ideology always prevents us from seeing things as they really are. In the next episode, we go to Mexico City, where the far-right ideology and trans-exclusionary feminism are getting into bed together to fight against trans rights. But the right also wants to end abortion rights and gay rights and women's rights. In Mexico City, we explore how this is all happening and also how feminist and queer activists are fighting back with everything from academic seminars to online protection groups to legal and legislative actions. We hope you'll join us in episode four to find out more about how the anti-gender ideology movement and fascism are traveling the world.
0: Hey, I want to thank all the people who made this episode happen. Rebecca Jordan Young and Juliana Newhauser for taking time to speak with us. Judith Levine for jumping in and asking how she could help. Catherine Wright for helping conduct the interview with Juliana. Julian Seeger-Reed for his Magic with Sound production. And as always, Allison Seeger for being executive producer, editor,
4: and ombuds person extraordinaire.